Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. H.E. Shmuel is no stranger to the Holiness Movement. In fact, he was one of the founders of the Interchurch Holiness Convention. This sermon was preached in 1999 at God's Bible School and College Camp Meeting in Cincinnati, Ohio, and it's titled, Brokenness. I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful sermon. Keep passing it on and on. Let's turn to Proverbs. Let's turn to Proverbs 6, verse 16. You have your Bible with you? I hope you bring a Bible to camp meeting. hope you bring a notebook. Somebody might say something you'd like to remember. Or you might say something you'd like to forget, so write it down to so be sure not to remember that. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that are shed innocent blood, a heart that devise wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Now, let me tell you, that's material to preach from for a long time, isn't it? <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's go to the uh, 16th chapter. Let's see what that has to say. Uh, surely there might be something uh, better in here than that. 16, 18, pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better is it to be of a humble spirit with the lowly, than to divide the spoil with the proud. Psalm 51 and uh, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. And Isaiah 57, that's in the Old Testament, Isaiah 57, and verse 66. Isaiah 57, 66. I don't, there isn't any such thing as 57, 66. I just had, but it's verse 15. Thus saith the high and the lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. 
I'd like to speak to us a while this afternoon. I won't deliver all this message and take me several nights or days to do this. But I'd like to talk about brokenness. Brokenness. I believe brokenness is probably the greatest quality that is lacking in our entire church world. We are facing many, many serious spiritual problems. But what would happen if we would all go back to the kind of brokenness that characterized us the night we were saved? We were, we were a worm. We were no man. We were, we were teachable. We were approachable. No matter how great our education, no matter how well schooled, regardless of who our father or our mother may have been or were, or how many dignitaries were in our family. When you got saved, you were of a broken and a contrite heart. Now, that's how you were when you got in. You were smashed. You were pulverized. You were nothing and nobody, and you were glad it was settled that way. The love of God and the joy of God filled your heart, and the peace of God reigned supreme in your spirit. And then the night you were sanctified. Oh, hallelujah. You were broken. You may have been spread-eagled in the straw pile or in the sawdust or you were limp as a rag or you, you say, well, I jumped and ran. But before you got up to jump to run, you were a broken man. You were a broken woman. And once again, you were approachable. You were teachable. You were pliable. You could be told. Someone said, raise your hand, and up your hand when somebody else said, uh, shout. Somebody said, amen, and you said, amen. You did whatever you were told to do. You were not hard to handle. Now, that's how you were when you were saved. That's how you were when you were sanctified. And that's the kind of an attitude you must maintain if you're going to stay in. The people who are no longer in the kingdom, though they professed a high heaven, are people who have departed or divorced themselves from a broken and a contrite heart. Brokenness is the key to usefulness. God never has used anybody who had an ego that would stand high and tall and strong. The men and the women that God uses and has used are men whose eyes were broken. They could testify, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I, but Christ liveth in me. It was a crucified eye. It was a broken eye. And this brokenness is vital to usefulness in the kingdom of God. When Saul of the Old Testament was little in his own eyes, God can use him. God can use any man when he cares not if God gets the glory and whether he gets any glory whatsoever. And so, for just a little while today, let's talk about this matter of a broken and a contrite heart. Number one, God abominates a proud look. There are seven things that God hates, and number one is the proud look. And number two is the twin sister, a haughty spirit. 
Now, I know there are people that sort of fit in the category of the, of the humble gentleman who said, you know, if there were a hundred people in this world that were truly God's people, I know this, my son and I would be two of them. And not only so, if there were uh, only two humble people in this world, I know that my son and I would be that number. And if there's only one in this world, I'm satisfied that I would be that one. And that kind of humility is the kind of humility that is sinking the cause of Christ and is breaking our hearts. The proud look. What is a proud look? Well, right away we can take off on spangles and bangles and glitz and glamour and a lot of other fancy nonsense that people put on or and embellish themselves with. We can spend a lot of time talking about a a lot of glitz and glamour and a lot of puff and pomp and ceremony and rings and jewelry and a lot of these goo-gahs that folks can hang on. But basically, this uh, reference is not to that kind of a look. It is to the, the disposition of heart and mind, the fellow that has the hard look, the fellow that refers now not to what he's wearing, but the curl of his lip and the set of his jaw. It re refers to that staring, unblinking, critical eye, the tilt of his head, the infallibility of his attitude, the popish atmosphere he carries about himself, that cold, metallic, pharisaical snobbery of an unsaved and an unsanctified disposition. This is basically the proud look. And you can find them in every church board and you can find them in every congregation. You can find them in the ministry. You can find them among general superintendents or you can find them among members of the clergy, people with or without degrees. You don't have to have a PhD to have a hard look or have a metallic stare or have a pharisaical and pompish or popish attitude about yourself. This is the kind of a spirit that God abominates. Sometimes that disposition has been manifested in the last number of years. Well, bless God, if you ever get right, you'll come crawling to me. When I see you on your belly coming in my direction, I know you're at least headed in the right direction, and you're at least at last you've found the right posture. And we've had this from men who are at the top and fellows who are at the bottom. This sad, sorry attitude of, of heart and mind that would bring anybody and everybody under their own personal domain and their personal control where they will rule every uh, whim and notion or fancy of anybody and everyone else is the proud look. And when they come into a congregation, if they have no official capacity there, they sit back with a critical, jealous, lurid eye and examine everybody from the kind of a hairdo they may have or the kind of a suit that someone is wearing, and they place judgmental attitudes upon anybody and everyone that sort of strikes their gaze, especially when they're not underneath their own special denominational domain or their own little independent group. You know, this matter of a proud look is not peculiar to denominational people. It's peculiar to mankind in general. Independent people can be as popish and as pharisaical and as separatist as anyone else and as elitist in their attitude and disposition as anyone else. 
This is not a peculiar trait of some church official or a peculiar trait to some denominational lord uh, who is lording it over God's heritage. This is a problem that we find in the home and we find it in the church and we find it wherever we go. But you'll never find this problem where a man or a woman has a broken and a contrite heart. You let a man come into the kingdom of God, be genuinely saved. I'm not talking about getting sanctified. Genuinely converted, genuinely saved by the power of God's grace in his life. And here you're meeting a man who is teachable and kind and understanding and open to the instruction of the Lord. You'll not find this kind of ecclesiastical or judgmental or personal snobbery or elitist spirit among them. And the haughty spirit really refers to that unteachable, censorious, critical, cynical, ambitious, self-seeking spirit and disposition that is so prominent in the lives of people who are no longer broken. I've seen fellows who carried a Ph.D. with grace who were humble and broken and childlike in their attitude. They seemed absolutely delighted to be in the presence of people who didn't seem to really be all that well-educated. The marks of a real education is, are not the great broad phylacteries of the educational institutions they attended hanging profusely upon them. The marks of a real genuine education uh, are those marks of meekness and intelligence and observation and of, uh, of wise understanding not only about the world they have studied about man, about mankind in general. And there's also a deep and personal love for all that are involved. But this other attitude is akin to a fellow by the name of Lucifer who said, I will arise. I will become like the most high God. I will exalt myself. And thus he did and thus he fell. There is no room in heaven for a haughty spirit. There is no room in the celestial city for people with a proud disposition. People who get to the celestial city will be happy indeed to fellowship with all of God's all of God's saints. I can't imagine. Uh, I can't imagine uh, the uh, the sainted uh, Madame uh, Guyon uh, having a fit because she's seated beside uh, the separatist John Wesley's. I can't imagine old long-bearded William Booth having a problem because he's uh, seated beside some other warrior of the cross. No, my dear friends, people who get to heaven will be of a broken and a contrite heart. And if you have to have it to get in there, you're going to have to have it to be, retain your relationship as a member of the kingdom of God right down here. And if you are not manifesting that kind of spirit, you're the man or the woman I'm talking to this afternoon. Amen. Too many of our folks are saying, well, I thank thee, Lord. I thank thee. Oh, glory. I thank thee. I am not like this fellow down here. I praise God I'm not like those Nazarenes down the street. Hallelujah. I came out of there a long time ago. Ooh, glory. My dear friend, I see the old Nazarene company just saying, oh God, we need help. We're drying up. We need help from heaven. And the book says God heard that fellow's prayer and he went down to his house justified. And whether it's a Nazarene or a Wesley or, a, or an independent or whatever it is, nobody will come into the presence of God unless they have a broken and a contrite heart. For the lowly Nazarene walked out of the ivory palaces of that distant world, came into this world and took 
upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the lowly, groveling death of the cross. And you and I are followers of the Nazarene, and there's no place for us to rear our head in self-sufficiency or intellectual pride. We hang our heads in love and adoration before him who hangs upon the tree. Amen. And holiness is Christ-likeness. True Christ-likeness is a broken and a contrite spirit. Nowhere in the Gospels do you find anything that smells or sniffs or seems to be uh, personifying haughtiness or, or rudeness or a, a, a disposition that is contrary to this matter of a broken and a contrite spirit. Well, my dear friend, God acclaims brokenness. He looks too. Turn to Isaiah 66, 2, if I'm not mistaken. I had some of these typed off just recently, and it looks like my secretary. I blame it on my secretary. She got some, maybe got this mixed up, or else I didn't have my references straight. But let's look uh, to Isaiah chapter 66 and verses 1 and 2. God acclaims, God honors, God rejoices in brokenness. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, and where is the house that you would build me? And where is the place of my rest? I'll tell you, for all those things hath my hand made, and all those things have been said, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. I'm the high and lofty one. I inhabit eternity. You couldn't build anything like where I, where I am. You couldn't build me a house like this. But I tell you where I really love to dwell. I love to dwell with the man or the woman that is of a broken and a contrite heart. Let me ask you something this afternoon. When have you had your greatest spiritual thrills? When have you had your greatest spiritual satisfaction? When have you been most satisfied with your religious experience and relationship to Christ? I can tell you when it was. It's when your heart was broken and melted like wax and your spirit was contrite and the gracious love of Christ and the joy of the Lord was flooding your soul and you were inundated by a heavenly flow from the celestial world and you were delighted. You were nothing and nobody and you were glad it was settled that way. You were glad you were recognized in heaven whether anyone recognized you or not. You didn't have to be called up to sing or to pray. You didn't have to be elevated to some special uh, place of responsibility in uh, the organization. You didn't have to be a deacon or an elder or a presiding officer of one kind or another. You were so delighted with the presence of God. And that happened the moment you were broken. You were, let me put it this way, you were busted. You were pulverized. You were little and uh, you were little. You were no one. You were a little man or a little woman. And you were useful in God's cause and in God's kingdom. He said, I'm going to look to this fellow who's trembling. Your best, your shining hours, your best time, your most genuine spiritual satisfactions have invariably flowed through your life and flowed out of your life when you were busted. Am I right? 
You say, well, I thought my best time was I was going over the backs of the seats shouting glory, glory, glory. Now, that wasn't the best time of your life. It was a good time if it was in the spirit. It was a fine time. We're not opposed to that. But your best times, your shiny, your most shining hour, your brightest moments, your, the, the highest level of your spiritual experiences when you were low, when you were down on your face, when you were humble before God, when there was no audience and there was no crowd, only angels fanning their wings and the voice of the Spirit whispering in your soul, my son, my son, I love you, I love you, and the love of God rippling through your soul, bathe your weary spirit, and you rose from there refreshed as though you could take on the troop and leap over a wall. You had a broken and a contrite. He said, to this fellow I'm going to look. Does God's word make you tremble? Does God's word make you humble before him? Do you realize that the lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, that sitteth upon the throne, you understand that when he speaks, you tremble at his word, not because you're afraid you're going to violate it or live in violation of it, but to think that God would speak to me that God would condescend to bend my ear with his voice from heaven. What a wonderful day and what a wonderful occasion. To this man will I look. I believe if our movement is going to have a look from heaven, I believe we're going to have to have this kind of brokenness among us. Sad to say we become an arrogant people, a proud people, satisfied with our accomplishments. Our lovely churches, the Laodicean period is upon us, and we have lofty edifices, and we have powerful institutions, and we got, not to hear us begging, but we got money running out our ears. We got all kinds of financial treasures, and we've got educated eggheads running all over the place, organizing or forming committees or publishing something or doing something or the other. But somehow or other, the cold, metallic attitude, even among people who are the same denomination, are separated and, and cold, and there's a lack of true, genuine love and fellowship among the body of Christ. What is really needed, friend, is a mighty melting, a going down before God of confession and contrition and brokenness and acknowledging uh, the coldness of our heart and the sins of backbiting or whispering or tail-bearing or slander or what have you, humbling ourselves before God. To this man will I look, the fellow who trembles when he hears my word. Most of the people today that I know don't tremble when I preach, I can tell you that. They don't pay too much attention. And I, I've noticed the other guys don't seem to get too good a response either. People listen. It's sort of their duty to come on in. They sample a little of this guy's sermon. They test this fellow a little bit. We kind of like that once in a while. And he has another sermon. I heard him preach someplace else. I hope he preaches it here. It's pretty good. But basically, he's just ho-hum or so-so. And so they're really not coming to hear the word or to tremble at the word. Uh, they're coming because it's sort of a family reunion. It's time to get together. It's a religious clam bake of one kind or another. And it's just nice being together to share a steak or a, if you can't afford a steak, a Pepsi or something or other. But God has a different plan for us. And God has a different plan for mankind. And that hard, harsh attitude will have to go. You may have been saved 20 years and sanctified longer than that. But friend, you must have a broken and a contrite heart. 
How long has it been since you've confessed your faults? How long has it been since you've humbled yourself before, uh, before your husband or before your wife or before your children? How long has it been since you said, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I apologize, I, I want you to pray for me? It's a long, long day. It's a long afternoon when you have to listen to that kind of stuff. Is there anybody out there at all? Well, I say hallelujah anyhow. One of John Wesley's favorite texts is over here in Ezekiel that harmonizes what I'm saying. Ezekiel 36, a new heart also will I give you. A new spirit will I put within you. I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'm amazed at the hard-hearted people, the cruel people, the unkind people, the unmerciful people that profess two works of grace that are among us. They don't never found this heart of flesh. All they have is a heart of stone. I will put my spirit within you. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them and you shall come in the land. And he goes on to give us a promise here concerning uh, heart cleansing. And I, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for you the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. And that's an Old Testament prophecy pointing to the day of cleansing, heart cleansing, second blessing, holiness. But the emphasis this afternoon is on this matter of a stony heart. You know, if you were broken and contrite when you were saved, how many were? I'd like to vote this crowd. Maybe it'll wake you. You had a broken and a con. Put them up high. I want to see my, my half-mass stuff. Your heart was broken. Okay. All right. Thank you. Now, are you broken this afternoon? Don't. I, I'm not asking you to put your hand up now. But I'm here to tell you this. When he came that first time, he took away your stony heart. You say, well, Brother Smooth, you're just emphasizing this hard-hearted stuff too much. My friends, if you go through the Bible, you'll find out that there are hard-hearted men. There's hard-hearted Herod. Remember Herod that had all the babies killed? He was a hard-hearted man. Remember Ahab in the Old Testament? He was a hard-hearted old king. He had no time for God or for his prophets or anyone else. He was a hard-hearted fella. He really would have liked to have done old Elijah in, and there was Jezebel, his, his, his companion, and she was after his head. These hard-hearted people, there are hard-hearted people in the Old Testament, hard-hearted people in the New Testament. David was a fellow who permitted his heart to get hard, and he permitted his heart to become cruel. You can be wonderfully saved and have a broken and a contrite heart for five years or five months or ten years. And then you can become careless and indifferent and you can find your, a shell, a crust developing on your heart. And David was having, uh, David was getting up there in years. He was, a, he was, a, in, uh, he was a, an old king now, but he wasn't going out to battle and he was taking it easy. And while he was lo lollygagging around, he got his attention focused upon Bathsheba. You know the rest of that story. And so he fell for Bathsheba. And then, uh, you know, the next thing he did, he was sent for Uriah and he got him drunk and, and then he sent Uriah back into battle and he had him killed. He was a cruel man. He turned cruel and hard and for months he covered his sin and he kept it undercover like a lot of people professing two works of grace. They keep the hard shell. I'm saved and sanctified. Bless God. Nobody's going to tell me I'm not.
Amen. I'd have you know I had this before you were born, puppy. I had this experience before you ever came around, pal. And you're not going to preach me out of this. I'm not trying to preach you out of anything. And nobody else is trying to preach you out of anything. But I'm here to tell you one thing, that when you were saved, you had a broken and a contrite heart. And if you ever get back to God, and if you ever get to heaven, you're going to have to recover from that stony heart. And he has promised to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's what he did for a fellow by the name of, of Saul of Tarsus. Did you ever hear of Saul of Tarsus? Remember him? Well, he's the fellow that uh, stood there holding the garments while Stephen was, was killed. He was ascending to his death. That's it. Uh, blood didn't bother him. The gore that was spurting here and there didn't bother him. He, he was killing the saints. He'd had them hauled off to jail, men and women and children as well. He had them carted away. He hated the Nazarene, and he hated people who took the way of the Nazarene. He had blood on his hands. He was a murderer. Yes, he was. He was a hard-hearted fellow. It's amazing to me how hard-hearted religious people can become. Remember the story about Calvin and Servetes? Remember that story? How many? Did you ever hear the story? Well, Servetes was a scholar of the same period of time as, as Calvin. And they had a big, uh, there was a, a vast difference in their opinion concerning the Eucharist. And in those days, they didn't have vast tracts of land that were, uh, joined, that were under one domain. They had small kingdoms like the city of Geneva, where Mr. Calvin was the, and to all practical purposes, the ruling monarch in that theocracy. And so he want, wanted to debate and change Servetes' mind, and so he invited him to come, and he guaranteed him uh, safety of, in his journey, and guaranteed that nothing would, would befall him. Servetes came, and Servetes and Calvin, they had a big debate. I don't know who won. Apparently, in my judgment, it looked like Servetes won because it wasn't uh, before Servetes ever got out of town, uh, somebody saw to it that he was killed. Well, of course, uh, some of us point our finger at Calvin, and other people say, well, it wasn't really Calvin, it was just some of his fellows, but who knows? I'm not here to say John Calvin did it. I'm simply here to tell you that religious warfare and religious strife is among the most cruel kind of warfare and strife that you can imagine. And I found that in holiness circles where... Is anybody listening to me at all? How many of you folks have gone to sleep? Put your hand up. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, thank you. Cruel, bloodshed, hatred, bitterness, rancor, ill will. Paul's heart was cold and stony. He was opposed to that Nazarene. He was opposed to the followers of the Nazarene. He had blood on his hand. He had murder in his heart. He, went, he was on that road to Damascus breathing out threatenings. That simply means he was going down the road doing a little bit of religious cursing and swearing. If I can get my hands on those people, blank, 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 I'm going to do so and so. What happened to Stephen is a drop in the bucket. I'm going to get a lot of blood out of these people. They're going to turn their back. They're going to forget this Nazarene. And then a light from heaven broke. Hallelujah. And that hard-hearted fellow had an encounter with Jesus Christ. The man on his way up that ecclesiastical ladder by the name of Saul of Tarsus, that young fellow who wanted to become someone and become someone, met the man 
on the middle cross coming down out of the ivory palaces. And that day there was a confrontation that left the Saul of Tarsus broken and humbled at his feet. And he said, Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do? And from then on, he was the apostle of divine love. He wrote the most beautiful ode to divine love found in the entire New Testament. It's called 1 Corinthians 13. Two or three times he talks about forgiving love. He said, if any man have a quarrel, forgive even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Forgive one another. Forbear with one another. That's the language that flows from a broken heart. It doesn't try to hold people up or take advantage of someone else or make sure that, you, that they get their just desserts at the end of your long cat of nine tails. No, my friend. Paul's heart was broken and pulverized, and never again do we see that kind, hear that kind of language uh, coming from him or flowing from his pen. And friend, you and I must maintain a broken and a contrite heart. I don't have a lot of time. I've been here 30 minutes already, but there are plenty of things in our movement to break our hearts. Satan plans to harden our heart and to poison our spirit. And I'm going to just go right over that section, but that is what's happening. Satan has plans to harden our heart, and we do get hard. We get so well saved and sanctified. We get judgmental and critical. Isn't it strange that the, about the first, uh, we get in the kingdom of God, and one of the first things we do is to set out to make sure that everybody else uh, sees it just like we do. And if you really want to be a real good Christian, if you really want to get to heaven, then you're going to be an awful lot like me. And we spend a good share of our time trying to get other people to get hung up on our hang-ups. Is anybody listening? I have a feeling nobody's even listening. Isn't that horrible? Who said that? Well, thank you, brother. God bless you. I wish I had time to talk to you about how Satan hardens our hearts. He does it. He does it by misdirecting our energies. He does it by hurrying us to act or to react or to speak out or speak unadvisedly with our lips or put something in print. That's the popular way to go today. How does Satan harden hearts? Did you, have you seen some of the stuff that comes out over the pulpit and some of the stuff that comes out in the press? Man, that has to come from people whose heart is as hard as a rock. Can't come from anybody that's a broken and a contrite spirit. Can't come from people who are broken and say, woe is me, I am undone. Comes from people who are infallible. It comes from people who are pharisaical, people who are spiritually elitist. People who apparently have got so far along in the grace of God, they don't need to worry about falling by the wayside. Let me tell you, one of the surest ways... The hardest fellow to get back to God is a legalist. The second hardest fellow to get back to God is a liberalist. And when people are legal or liberal, let me tell you, they're hard, very, very hard people to deal with. And Paul was a legalist. But never after the road to Damascus. He had to be careful. He had to be watchful. But so do we all. I'll take about five minutes and I will close. What needs to be confessed so that we may be broken? Are you listening? What do you need to confess? Well, I think we need to confess our ugly, thoughtless words and deeds, such as evil speaking, 
This is a plague among us, isn't it? Evil speaking. Ravenhill's a very personal friend of mine, has been for many years. Occasionally calls me up on the phone. I published some books at his request. He's a great guy. He's 77 now. He too has had open heart once. And uh, he was in a Congress a number of years ago where uh, one of the, uh, the speakers overlapped. One fellow came in and the other fellow left, and they were shared the same weekend together, or they were about to share the same weekend. One fellow preached in the morning, the next fellow preached on Sunday night, and then the morning preacher would depart. And so when, uh, of course, they're all top-flight guys, all big shots, you know, way, way up here in the ecclesiastical world, fellows that are splendid with using words. And when... Uh, the speaker that was winding up in the morning uh, had an opportunity to speak to the leader of the conference. He took him aside. He said, I'm surprised. He said that you've got so-and-so coming in. He said, I really don't feel too good about him following me and my ministry here. I'm surprised you'd have him. Well, he said, what's wrong with him? Well, he said, I'd rather not say, but there's some unsavory things. I'll just leave it there. Later in the day, the fellow who came in as to preach that night in having some refreshment with the leader of the conference said, you know, uh, I met so-and-so and I heard his message this morning, but he said, I, I really thought you operated your conference here on a different level. I'm surprised that you, you had him here. Had you heard what happened at conference so-and-so? I said, no, I really hadn't. He said, what time are you leaving in the morning? Well, or what? no. He said, uh, would you meet me in my office in the morning? And then he hunted up the other fellow who was going to be leaving, and he said, instead of going, would you mind meeting me in my office tomorrow morning at 9? Unbeknownst to either of the other fellows, the leader of the conference is having these two fellows come to his office and meeting him there. They met. <laughs> so glad to see you, brother. I enjoyed your message last night. You had a great, had a great message this morning, that yesterday morning. So good to see you. Conference leader cut right through and said, Now, just a minute, fellows. Both of you men have been to me, and you've had something unsavory to say about each other. I don't know what the problem is, and I don't care to know it. But he said, I'm going out. And I'm locking this door, and you two aren't going to get out of here until you have reconciled and made things right. He said, I'll come back in an hour and see how you're doing. He said an hour later, turned the lock, came in. He said, there they were, tears flowing copiously. They were in each other's arms. They'd been blubbering and bawling and asking, and that, asking forgiveness back to the broken heart. Friends, you cannot carry a grudge or an unforgiving attitude or an evil disposition to speak evil and uh, to slash and cut and chop and maim one another. You can't do it! And maintain a broken and a contrite heart. And your heart gets frozen over and crusted over and gets hard. You're barred from heaven. You know, we say, I'm saved and sanctified. My friend, nothing will keep you out of heaven but a hard, harsh, crusty, unbroken attitude. That'll keep you out. 
a harsh spirit. We need to confess our harshness, our unkind words, our argumentativeness, our unchristlikeness. I have a little note here. I don't know where I found this. I got quotes around. The more I insist upon my rights, the less communication I have with you. I think that's about right, isn't it? The more I insist upon my rights, especially my right to have you shut up and listen to what I have to say, the less real communication we have. It gets to be a one-end seat. It gets to be a monologue instead of a dialogue. Roy Heston tells this story on himself, and I had the privilege of meeting Roy uh, on a plane a number of years ago. I don't know if you've read Roy Hessen's book or not. I don't agree with all of his theological conclusions, but I know this, that he strikes the keynote when he speaks about, when he preaches about brokenness. But Roy Hessen has been a very popular and well-known conference speaker. He was in London in his own backyard, and he was uh, featured as one of the guest speakers since he was at home. He's a very efficient kind of a fellow. Everything's in order. Crosses the T's and dots the I's and everything. His wife is a little bit on the slow side and he was, uh, something had gone wrong and he was in a hurry. He wanted to be sure to be at the meeting on time and uh, he was in the car waiting for her impatiently and when she came, he jerked the car and slammed, the door slammed and smashed her fingers, slammed the door and bunged up and battered up her hand. But even with the blood coming, she wrapped it up in a handkerchief and they sped away to the meeting that night where he was the speaker. He said, it took me four days to get around to say, my dear, I was very unchristlike. That was not, that was not right. I was wrong. He said, I bowed down before my wife and said, oh, my dear, how... How thoughtless, how cruel, my pride about being at the meeting on time. I didn't want to be a minute late. I didn't want anyone to think that I was inefficient. And here, your hand, my dear, I'm sorry. He had a chance to see it in the four days that intervened during. But no wonder, he said, my messages didn't go over at the conference. No wonder I couldn't ring the bell. No wonder I couldn't get help from heaven on my soul as I tried to preach. He got crusty. You know, we preachers can get professional. We can get professional. We can, we can do it. We can put it over. We know how to put it past, you know. We have the words. We have the pulpit. We have the mic. We, have, we can exercise. Oh, God, have mercy upon us. My friend, if anybody needs a broken and a contrite heart, it's the fellow that stands behind the sacred desk. And all during this camp meeting I trust that you'll pray for all of we preachers we're just clods like yourself redeemed lifted out of the deep miry clay saved by the blood of the crucified one and there was a night there was a night in New York State in a little town called Faulkner where I heard my first gospel sermon preached by a fellow by the name of Floyd Bradley. Does anybody here ever know Floyd Bradley? Anybody? Floyd Bradley. He was an Azarene evangelist. He preached that night. I tell you, I got in the kingdom that night. I was a wayward, hard-hearted, cruel-minded, bitter young person. 
But something happened. Something melted. I got that heart of flesh that night. Old things really passed away. Little old moon brook that flowed by that church never sparkled so beautiful in the moonlight as it did that night. And that was the beginning. There have been times, I make this confession and close, there have been times when I've had hardness of spirit. I've got harsh. I have one of my former parishioners sitting back here, William Ralph Tuttle. Not only at Rochester when I was your pastor, Ralph, but since then I too have had to say to the people, you know, I preached the truth, but it wasn't in love. I've been hard. I've been harsh. I want you to forgive me for being harsh and unkind. I, uh, I have to go to my wife every once in a while and say, Honey, I haven't been as grateful about all you've done for me as I ought to be. We've been 48 years together, but I, I haven't been as thoughtful. I've been thoughtless. Forgive me, dear. I spoke hastily the other day. Forgive me. I've awakened my boys out of their sleep at night. I had a, my son, now almost 45 years old. I can see him as a young man attending Asbury Seminary, home over Christmas. You know, when you're a father, a strong-headed one like some of us are, think you're in charge, you know. That day he and I had a little, uh, little difference of opinion about a certain thing that happened. It, what I can't remember, it wasn't anything that big. But anyhow, as the father, as the head of the house, I had the final word. And I went to bed that night. And there wasn't any singing in my soul. He'd been in bed for quite a while. I turned to my wife and said, Honey, I said, I got to go in and talk to H.E. a minute. She said, Well, I think you do. No help there. <laughs> and I went in and I shook, shook that big guy and I said, H.E., the old authoritative voice, H.E., yeah, yeah, Dad, Dad, what do you want? I said, Son, I was wrong today. I showed the wrong spirit. I can't have a heart. I can't carry this hard spirit. You forgive me. Out of the darkness, two big old arms came up. <laughs> what a warm embrace. Well, I have the best of relationship with the members of my family. We've, we've practiced this across the years. I remember one, I remember one time when my son who had become bitter in some of the religious struggles and wars that were going on. I stood up on a Sunday morning and humbled myself before the Lord. And my son stood up, and he was now a graduate from his teaching school at that time. He stood up and said, Dad, I was going to go to another church. It wasn't my problem, but I was going to go and take the humble place. He said, Dad, you always do that. He said, it doesn't do any good. I think it's a mistake. I said, I'm sorry, son, but I feel like that's what I should do. We'd been in revival for two weeks and nothing was happening. Nothing was taking place. Preaching every night, thundering away, but no breaking up. And so we took care of that little task and Sunday night we came and my brother, that was the beginning of about six or eight weeks of wonderful, wonderful outpouring. But the first thing that happened that night was 
That boy stood up and said, Dad, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And he went to two or three very prominent places. I think he went back to Rochester, Ralph, and publicly he'd left there with some unhappy attitudes in his heart toward one or two people. He goes back and visits all the time. He's got the best kinds of relationship back there. But let me tell you, friends, a broken and a contrite heart is the only way we're going to make it to the city. I don't know who you're thinking about, but it won't hurt you to say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. You were right. Pray for me. You are dismissed. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't